Good morning again. You know, I missed my chance to make the joke about the budget was in such a bad spot we couldn't afford to have Randy here this morning. Uh, so I'll just make it now. Actually, they are, um, Randy and Judy are visiting with Miss Abby this weekend. She's being sworn in as an attorney tomorrow in the state of South Carolina. So uh, they'll be back um, next week. So a great celebration for them. Uh, and, and so he leaves me here with Habakkuk chapter 2, which I told, already warned a few of you this morning, like this is a really heavy passage. I'm not a really heavy guy. Like, I like things light and fun and laughs and jokes. You're not going to get a lot of them this morning. I'm just going to warn you because of the content of the woes that we find here in Scripture. You know, uh, everybody loves to think that they would love to hear a direct word from the Lord, that they would love to have it very clear what God would love for them to do and to say. But how many of you and how many of us would love to have the ministry and the word of the Lord like to Jeremiah? You know, or one of these minor prophets whose words from God just kind of, we can just imagine they're receiving them like, like a rock um, that's sinking down. So I would invite you to turn to your Bibles, uh, Habakkuk chapter 2. I do have one more joke this morning. Um, ben MacArthur was going to lead worship at Ole Miss Beat Georgia last night. We were in no danger of that the whole time. So uh, Jeremy came in uh, loud and proud today. So thank you, Jeremy, for leading us in worship. And thank you, Ben, for not... Um, So if you would please stand with us, Uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, we are going to read verses 12 through 20, which is number, uh, page number 934 in your pew Bibles, uh, if you would like to turn there with us. Let me pray for us as we get into God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. God, we thank you that in your kindness, you tell us not just what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. Lord, we thank you for who you are, we thank you for what you have done, and we thank you for your heart for people. We ask that you would open our eyes and our ears to your message this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself. And show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. As will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth. To cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it. A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in its own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is the inspired and errant word of God. Please be seated. Uh, 
Now, as we, as we get into these woes of God, these, these, these words, these harsh words of Habakkuk towards these Babylonian people that are going to come, and, and if you remember, uh, taking you back just a little bit, the book of Habakkuk is written to the people of God who are crying out for vengeance. They're crying out for deliverance. They want God to come and judge sin. And, and what's the danger in asking the Lord to come and to judge sin? Well, he might just do it. It's, it's like asking the Lord for patience. Have you ever prayed for patience before and then the Lord gave you opportunities to demonstrate patience in your life? You know, when, when, when the Israelites are asking the Lord to come and to judge the sin of their neighbors, the Lord first says, yeah, I'll come and judge, but, but guess where judgment starts? Judgment starts at home. And why is the Lord so adamant about judging sin? Well, it's really because of the ferocious love of his people. We're going to look at three woes this morning. Okay, the woes of blood, the woes of wine, and the woes of stone. And we're going to see that God calls us into a, a better story than the story not only that the world is trying to tell us, but the story that we are trying to tell ourselves. Now, in, in verse 12 through 14, we find this first woe, and, and it starts out, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Now, this is a woe against those who are practicing oppression and violence. And, and we can think through the history of the world, the history of civilization, of civilization and look at, at wealth and legacy, which has built upon the backs of other people. You know, the, think back to the Egyptians who built these incredible um, you know, monuments to their own power and glory out in the desert on the backs of slave labor that, that still stand thousands of years later, even today. A monument of what man can achieve as long as they have no morals, right? Or think about the, the transatlantic slave trade, which... which helped create such a, a robust economy for so many people. Or even in places where slavery was never really formally practiced, we still see violence and oppression, which has been commonplace throughout history. You know, I come from Pittsburgh, which is known as the what city? Steel City. Steel city. Okay, great. Steel City, thanks to industrial magnets like Andrew Carnegie and Henry Clay Frick. Okay, so Andrew, Car Andrew Carnegie, if you've heard his name before, he was the founder of Carnegie Steel, uh, which was later known as U.S. Steel. In his heyday, he was the wealthiest man in the world, wealthier even, even than a contemporary of his, John D. Rockefeller. And during the last 18 years of his life, he gave away $350 million, like in, in that, that era's currency. You know, in today, that would have been over about $6 billion dollars. You know, he supported things like the libraries and the arts and, and sought world peace and education and scientific research. You know, you've heard of Carnegie Hall, right? In, in New York City, there's another one in Pittsburgh, which is not quite as nice, but hey, it's in Pittsburgh, so it's better than going to New York. <laughs> he built the Peace Palace in The Hague. Uh, he started a university called Carnegie Mellon uh, in, in Pittsburgh, which is known, world-renowned for its advancements in technology and and science, and, and he built museums and libraries and brownstone after brownstone. If you go to the city of Pittsburgh, for, for a city as small as it is, it has an incredible wealth of immaculate public buildings, 
thanks to the generosity of men like Andrew Carnegie. And, and how did he has obtain his wealth? Well, he, he sort of revolutionized the process of making steel. And, and Carnegie was also, though, a member of this place called the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club. You may have heard of this if you paid attention in your history class, especially if you grew up in western Pennsylvania, uh, which was started by one of his business partners, a man named Henry Clay Frick. Now, Frick was a, a ruthless and cutthroat man. Uh, he famously called in a private militia uh, when the, the workers at the homestead steel mill threatened to go on strike. And so he brought in 300, essentially, uh, militia members to put down this strike after, of course, you know, the steel industry is doing record profits. They're making more money than, than anyone has ever made in the world before. Um, and 12 people are killed in this battle between the, the steel workers and those who had come to suppress the strike. But some years before that, Frick was also, uh, he and some of his wealthy friends, including Carnegie, those members of the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club had purchased the South Fork Dam, which was built some 14 miles upstream of the city of Johnstown. They lowered the top of this dam by three feet uh, they failed to replace the emergency spillways that had been put uh, in place in case the water levels got too high and they needed to, you know, temporarily relieve the strain on this, what was at the time, the largest earthen dam in the world. On May 31st, 1889, after days of heavy, heavy rain, the unimaginable happened. Right? The dam completely collapsed 20 million tons of water came hurling down the river valley, completely wiping out towns and cities and killing over 2,200 people in the process. Just so some guys could have a fishing and hunting club up on top of this gorgeous river valley. So titans in finance and industry, fabulously wealthy and powerful, and yet directly or indirectly responsible for the deaths of thousands of people. You know, at one point... Carnegie realized that he wasn't even going to live long enough to give all of his money away if he wanted to. And yet when you looked at his business practices and how he cared for the people that were entrusted to him, you go, where, where, where does the, where's the disconnect here, right? How can you care so much about the common man and yet oppress everyone that works for you? John Calvin says, says this. He says, when any tyrant violently oppresses helpless men, we always say, how long? Though everyone says this as to others, yet no one as to himself. Self-love so blinds us that we seek to absolve ourselves from that fall which we freely condemn in others. You know, as, as people, I think we, we celebrate when we see justice in, to those who are oppressed and vengeance to those who practice violence. You might remember back in April of 2011, if you lived in the state of Alabama, what happened? We had a massive tornado that came through and wiped out power to the entire county, maybe the whole top half of the state. And, and, and if you were there for that time, you probably remember that it was beautiful weather, uh, a great time to be alive as long as you didn't like having electricity and couldn't, you know, didn't need to go anywhere because you couldn't get gas in your car. I remember that the power was out for about three or four days, and in our neighborhood, it came back on Sunday evening. 
And, and what happens when your power goes off for three days and you get your power back? The first thing you do is do what? Turn on the television, right? Anybody? Were you, were you there? Do you remember this? And so not long, minutes after we turn on the TV, we have the President of the United States interrupting whatever broadcast was happening to announce that Osama bin Laden had been captured, not captured, but found and killed and buried at sea. Now, there was a great celebration on our street that night, and it had nothing to do with the power coming back on. You know, we celebrated that an injustice had been righted, that vengeance had been brought to a man who had caused so much pain and suffering for so many people, not just in this nation, but around the world. You know, in God's judgment on the Babylonians, the, the Israelites were looking forward to that. They, they thought it was going to bring great rejoicing to them. And, and God even says, hey, the whole earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as I, as I pronounce my judgment on these people. And the justice of the Lord is going to bring peace. Right? It's going to bring rejoicing. It's going to bring celebration. Now, now each generation of people, I think uh, sociologists tell us, they have these different questions. Right? And so, so the, the boomers, the boomer generation, ask this question, what is true? Have you heard this before? The Gen X generation ask the question, what is real? The millennials ask the question, what is good? And Gen Z asks the question, what is beautiful? So we, we have these prophets, and then we have nomads. We have heroes and artists, and these people who are looking for answers to big questions as they look around the world and going, where, where do we find truth? Where do we find reality? Where do we find goodness? Where do we find beauty? Because we're not seeing it much in the world as it is. Now, amazingly, the answer to all of these questions is the same answer, Right? If, if you're a believer, you believe that God is true. If you're a believer, you understand that God is real, that God is good, that God is beautiful. And so this idea that the whole world will know, that will see the truth of the knowledge of the glory of God brings great delight to us when we think about injustice in the world, when we think about the lack of beauty in the world, when we think about the lack of truth in the world. And we cry out when we recognize injustice, and then we rejoice when justice is served. And yet, at the same time, we're all a bit blind to the injustice that we commit. You know, one of my friends said recently that if you want to see what a man loves, just look at what he gets angry about. If you examined your heart, if you examined where, what wells up inside of you, what things cause you to, maybe, maybe you're not an overtly violent person, right? Maybe you just have these little mini, um, you know, but maybe the eyes can say a lot of things. Sometimes I get told that. Maybe you do too. Where, is, where do you see injustice in the world? Is it just the injustice that happens to you, or do you have eyes to see other places? And we had the very interesting question this week at our house when one of our daughters came up and asked uh, my wife, is it murder, which is always a good way, good way to start a question, <laughs> is it murder if you kill your own dog? And she goes, oh, uh, how do you answer that question? Well, you know, it's not murder, like you're not killing a person, but it is wrong, you can't do that. And why do you ask? Well, she said, well, because daddy has a one dog at a time policy, and I really want a puppy. You know, and so the only way that I can see in my mind to get that puppy is to right this injustice 
by putting our six-year-old Labradoodle out of her misery, you know? Such an innocent desire, right? I want a puppy, and yet where do we go with that? Is, is, is it a violent tendency, or is it just this the way we start to think? You know, I'll, I'll confess to you that um, I really grew up loving animals. You know, one of the things I wanted to be when I was a child was either like a, a park ranger so I could go out and, and hang out with grizzly bears and mountain lions because I thought that'd be fun, right? Um, or maybe a zoologist or, or maybe a veterinarian, something like that. Um, and, and so I started to think about, about that as, as I heard of, um, what our daughter asked. And I started to think about when my own love for animals kind of started to wane a little bit. And I was, I was thinking back to a time on a mission trip in the Dominican Republic some years ago. And I'll confess to you, as we were there visiting in this country with very little resources, that my eyes were first drawn to the plight of the dogs. Okay, they're very sickly, very pathetic, like nobody feeds them, nobody cares for them, there's no vets, nobody spaying or neutering these animals. And, and so I, I started to get really kind of burdened for the plight of the, of the animals that I was seeing. And then, but we were also operating this medical clinic at the same time, and we were out in the countryside, and we you know, one of the things that we do, especially for women who are, you know, of a certain age, is that we, we offer them a pregnancy test. And so here's this woman who had come, and she brought her kids to see the doctor, and we do the kind of the routine, you know, the pee on the stick type of thing, and, and, and came back and told her the great news, hey, you're, gonna, you're pregnant, you're going to have a baby. Well, she already had two or three children in her arms, and, and then she started, she said, well, hey, is there anybody on your team that would take this little five-year-old boy? Because when that baby comes, we don't have the capacity to care for him any longer. And he's going to be on the streets. And she said it so matter-of-factly, like it wasn't a, this might happen, but this is what's going to happen unless you do something about this. And my, my heart started to change a little bit, thinking, why am I so concerned about the dogs? Right? Is that what the Lord has called me to do, is to come and care for animals other places when you have people in such a difficult and hard situation? You know, how do we respond to things like that? Are, are we more passionate about the plight of puppies than we are about the plight of unwanted children? You know, passion is good, and justice is good. But often I need help, and I think we all need help, trying to figure out our priorities in this. Can we see that there are so much greater things at stake than often the trivial things that we allow to upset us and drive us into places of anger? Do we long for justice in the world or do we really only long for justice in ourselves? You know, I know myself. I know the way I think. So now we turn, of course, I told you this is going to be not, a, not, the, not the most fun sermon in the world. Verses 15 through 17, the woe of wine. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink, you who pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You know, I was reading uh, just a few days ago that, that federal prosecutors in the state of Massachusetts have made some arrests, maybe you saw this, in a high-end brothel system that was being operated at least in Massachusetts and Virginia. And, and quoting one of these prosecutors, here's what he said about the clients of this high-end brothel network. He said, they are doctors, they are lawyers, they are accountants, they are executives of high-tech companies and pharmaceutical companies, they are military officers, 
government contractors, professors, scientists. They gave information which included their driver's license photos, employer information, credit card information. They even paid a monthly fee. These people that are now being sought out by the, the law. But, but lest we think that exploitation like this is reserved for the elite and powerful, just remember some facts about the endemic of abuse. According to the CDC, over 50% of women and 30% of men have been the victims of sexual violence involving physical contact during their lifetime. Over 50% of women and almost a third of men have been victims of contact in their lifetime. You know, it's not just a problem that's, that's out there in the world that this is somebody else's issue. And, you know, again, we're looking at the Babylonians. What are they doing? They're giving these people wine and they're making them drunk and they're, making, they're taking advantage of them and exploitation. Oh, the same thing happens here. You know, abuse has been a massive problem in the church as well. The, the Roman Catholic Church, if you've ever read the news, they've had a lot of issues with this. And rightfully so, they've, they've received a lot of headlines for their improper handling of cases of abuse. They've, they've moved people around from one church to another, never really dealing with issues and just letting people free, predators free reign over victim after victim after victim without ever actually confronting the issue. But it's not just a Roman problem. Every denomination, including our own, has harbored, sometimes knowingly and sometimes not, spiritual leaders who preyed on the women and children and others that they were charged to shepherd and protect. You know, some have knowingly hidden clergy and elder abuse instead of reporting it to authorities, trying to handle things themselves in a spiritual way to avoid making a scene. Some people have shamed the victims of abuse, making people that have been abused publicly confess their sins of being a, a part of these issues. The EPC, uh, the, the denomination that we belong to, recently has... has uh, announced a revision to the Book of Order, uh, one of our constitutional documents, which includes specific wording reminding churches, and as particularly sessions, that enacting church discipline in instances of abuse does not negate the legal responsibility to report abuse to the proper authorities. And, and why did they feel the need to remind churches that they are required to do what they're already required to do? It's because many churches and pastors have not done such. According to LifeWay Christian Research, uh, a survey in, in 2019, 10% of American Protestants, 35 and under, have left the church at some point due to issues related to sexual misconduct and abuse not being addressed within the church. That's huge. This is not just 10% of people who left the church. 10% of people that are 35 and under have left the church because of this. And of course, that's just the type of, con the, the type of conduct and contact, sorry, contact that's without consent that we would call criminal abuse. But let's also remember that, that the biblical standard for appropriate intimacy is not consent, right? It is commitment. You know, God identifies all such behavior outside the covenant of marriage as sinful. And, and why is that? Is it because God is a God of no fun? Right? That God just doesn't want people to have a good time? Or is it because God fiercely loves his people and he understands that love is so much more than just a physical sensation? 
that it can only be appropriately enjoyed within the safety of a lifelong covenant with someone who has pledged their life to you, to defend you and to be with you and who will not abandon you when the spark is gone or when someone more desirable comes along, who will nurture and care for the children that result from intimacy instead of abandoning and discarding them. You know, historically, the early church was, was really attractive in a highly sexualized Roman Empire, precisely because of the sexual ethic that it preached, not in spite of it. You know, women and children at this time, they had no rights of their own. They were seen as objects to be consumed and devoured. And to get an idea of, of how widespread the issue had become, uh, there was a pastor in the, in the fourth century, John Chrysostom, who he was preaching to his church and he was encouraging them not to go to brothels. Okay, and the reason that he gave for that was because you might unknowingly commit incest with one of your abandoned sons or daughters. Right? The, the Roman practice was that if you had a child and you didn't want this child, you could leave it outside on your doorstep. You just left it next to the trash. And people would come around and pick up these children, but they weren't like taking them to an orphanage. These were people that were running brothels. And, and they would take them and they would invite them in and then that's how these places were getting filled. And then Christians came and they started operating a new way of life. And you had new people going around and they were also collecting children and those who were oppressed and they were inviting them into their homes and they were raising them as their own family. Instead of forcing them into shameful lifestyles, the church was caring for needs and raising people and children to know what it's like to live with dignity and not with shame. You know, maybe we don't live, maybe you don't work in, in this system, maybe we don't have quite as many brothels as we do today, but we all know about the prevalence, the ease of access that each of us has to pornography. How many people would never step foot into a place that yet struggles with some of this behavior that fuels a worldwide system of exploitation and abuse? that sees women and children caught up in an evil system and, and turning towards alcohol and other substances in order to numb their pain and hide their shame. You know, the Lord's heart goes out to the vulnerable, to women and to children and the hurting and the oppressed and the exploited. And he says, woe to you who take advantage of the weak and the powerless, for you will have no glory and you will be filled with shame. And finally, we have one more woe, the woe of stone found in verses 18 through 20. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in its own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, and to a silent stone, arise. And what a feel-good message we have this morning. You know, violence and exploitation and idolatry, which one of these sins is more damaging than the other? That's kind of a, a trick question, isn't it? You know, in, in each of these things, we can identify what's gone wrong here. That John Calvin wrote that, that the human heart is this perpetual factory of idols, you know, where we're designed to worship, and, and, and we worship so many things. And if our anger reveals the things that we love, then our anxiety reveals those things which we worship. If you think about the things that make you anxious, 
You know, is, it, is it the fact that your favorite sports team might lose a game? In our, in our home, sometimes the Ohio State game goes off if, we're, if, there, if there is a chance if there's a chance that the other team might get within two touchdowns before the end of the game. Like, I can't handle that. It's too stressful. You know, a, a fan is short for what? Fanatic, right? Uh, and do we worship our, our security? Do we worship our society? Do we worship ourselves? How do you feel when your comfort is threatened? You know, idolatry is really just allowing anything into that space, that space in your heart that's reserved only for God. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that God has made, has put eternity into the heart of man. You know, where in some sense we have this God-shaped hole inside of our heart and nothing finite can fill something that only the infinite was designed to satisfy. How could we let creation be a substitute for our creator? And, and idolatry really is just telling God, hey, I don't, I don't need you. I've got this. You know, I can provide all that I need. I am enough. And so God says, woe to you who worship an image or a philosophy or or an identity or anything else that you have created in your quest for meaning and significance. Because there's no ultimate meaning outside of the one who gives all meaning. There's no ultimate reward outside of the God who, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who who everything belongs to him. There's no significance outside of the one who reigns eternal and sovereign over all the earth. And so then Habakkuk kind of gets back to this question. I think that all of us are invited to then think of this question. In this world of oppression, in this world of exploitation, in this world of idolatry, where is God? You know, if this is something that we are all a part of, if this is essentially, this is the... the the, the water that we swim in, right? Where is the Lord? And why hasn't he done something about this before? Well, the choir sang it beautifully for us this morning, but verse 20 we read here, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Where is the judge? Where is the ruler? Where is that eternal, omnipotent, omniscient God? Well, Scripture says he's on his throne. He is in his holy temple from which he will come to judge, and all will be silent before him. And here's the thing about God. He is not harsh, he is not cruel, and he is also not arbitrary. Nothing and no one will be able to defend or excuse their actions because God sees all and he knows all. And when the judge is ready to act, there is going to be blood and there's going to be wine and there's going to be stone. But it's not the way that we think. In one of the most egregious acts of violence the world has ever seen, a group of wicked and jealous authorities brought an innocent man to a farce of a trial before wrongly convicting him and pronouncing him guilty and sentencing him to death for crimes he did not commit. Isaiah says, by his wounds, by his blood, you have been healed. And the wine of God is not the wine of wrath that that Jesus was looking to drink when he was in the garden. When he said repeatedly, Lord, if you will let this cup 
passed from me. What was the cup? The cup was the, cup was the vengeance of the Lord that was destined for, for us, and Jesus takes it upon himself. And then he offers us a new wine. This wine would not be used to exploit and to bring shame, but to usher in a new covenant, to feast in a new and glorious kingdom where pain and trauma and abuse would be nothing more than a faint and distant memory. See, the cup of the new covenant is a cup of inexpressible joy. It was the joy that was set before Jesus. See, he's looking at two cups, right? The the first cup is the cup of God's, God's wrath, and the second cup is the cup of joy on the other side of the cross. And that joy is now offered to us at his table. And finally, we find the stone. And this stone, unlike the other stones, is one that we can worship. This stone, unlike the other stones, is our firm foundation. It is the rock on which the church is built. It is the chief cornerstone and a stumbling block for all oppressors, abusers, idolaters, and self-worship. You see, the blood that we need is the blood of Jesus. The wine that we need is the cup that Jesus offers And the stone we need is the only rock upon which we can build our very lives. Will we pray and ask that the Lord will open our eyes and our hearts to see our desperate need for his blood and for his wine and for the rock that is Jesus Christ. Won't you pray with me? Father God, as we think about you, we think about your justice, we think about your vengeance, we think about the sin that we see in the world, and even, honestly, the sin that we see within our own hearts, Lord, it can be so overwhelming. We know that we need justice, we, we desire the truth, we desire that which is good, we desire that which is beautiful, we desire that which is real, and all of these things where we find in the person of Jesus. Lord, who poured out his blood for us. Lord, who, could, who took the cup that we could not drink to give us a cup that we long to enjoy forever. Lord, and the only one that we can build our lives on. Lord, bring us to Jesus today. Open our eyes. Open our hearts. Lord, may you fill us, we pray in his name. Amen.